morning, everyone. Hey, today we'll begin a brand new series called What is Jesus Doing Now? Last week we celebrated the greatest event in history, the resurrection. And today we begin this new series called What is Jesus Doing Now? And today, to begin to answer that question, we start, we'll start off this series by going in the first chapter of one of the most challenging books in all of the Bible, and one of the most hardest ones to understand, the book of Revelation. Now, how many of you, just by show of hands, have heard of the book of Revelation before? Raise your hand up. Yeah, I think even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you probably have maybe even heard of the book of Revelation. I mean, sometimes they feature it in some scary movies or some apocalyptic-style movies. But have you ever wondered why it's called Revelation? Well, see, John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book, at the end of the day, is all about Jesus. In fact, the Apostle John tells us that, and he's telling us that. What we're going to see today as we look in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to see him have this vision of Jesus and see how you see Jesus matters and how you see Jesus operating in your life matters. So today as we we begin this series, we're going to get a better picture of Jesus. The Apostle John got this glimpse of who Christ is now that he's resurrected, a glimpse of who he is now that he has ascended. So we're going to read a couple of verses in chapter 1, but then the main passage we're going to focus on in verses 12 through 18. So if you have an analog Bible or a digital Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And listen to how John starts off in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near." Then in verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philly, and to Laodicea. Now, pause right there for a moment. You know, this book does have a lot of mystery in it, okay? There's a lot of prophecy in it. I mean, there's been lots of commentaries and books written about the book of Revelation. And there's lots of heavenly symbolism and lots of prophetic language used all throughout this book. But even right here, right out the gate, John wants to make some things crystal clear. He wants to make some things really clear to these seven churches that he was going to send this letter to, but also wants to make some things crystal clear to the churches that would come throughout the centuries, to the church that would be in the 21st century, even the church that would be right here at 1832 Elbow Road. In fact, he makes it really clear that the Apostle John is writing this. He is the one who really did walk and talk with Jesus. 
This is the same John who would do this gospel eyewitness account in the letter John and in some other letters he would write to churches later on as well. This is the same John who gave himself the nickname as the beloved disciple. This is the same John who saw Jesus die on the cross. Even though all the other disciples run away, he would see Jesus beaten and bloodied and hung on the cross for our sins. This is the same John who Jesus looked at him and said, will you take care of my mom? In fact, this is the same John who was also a fellow sufferer of persecution. He said he was on the island of Patmos. And Eusebius, who was actually a, a second century uh, church historian, he noted that John was exiled to Patmos. And Patmos was pretty much this prison island that the Roman government had for any political enemies. They would send them to this prison island and banish them and exile them while they were serving their time. In fact, during this time, Rome was under the rule of Emperor Domitian. And see, Domitian came after this previous emperor named um, named Caesar, and a, or after Nero. After Nero came Domitian. See, Nero, when he was ruling Rome, he was so anti anything involving Jesus, anything involving the church. In fact, it was Nero who actually had these decrees that would have Christians put into these giant arenas. And Christians were literally killed or abused or persecuted for sport. And when Domitian took over after Nero, he made it even worse. Not only did he continue the pattern of Nero in persecution and even execution of the church, he made this edict. He made this, this, he made this decree that if you did not worship the emperor, if you did not worship him, you were literally going to be put to death. And so it was under all of this that John writes this letter from this island of Patmos under this extreme time of persecution for the church. And see, because we know Domitian was a ruler at the time, we know that this letter was probably written right around 95 AD, about 60 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Now, why do I tell you all of that? It's because we really do have some extra biblical accounts that support what we see right here in Scripture. In fact, if you go right now and simply Google Domitian, you're going to see the time period that he ruled, all the edicts that he decreed, that this was, these were real people that were really under persecution of a really evil emperor during this time. But see, the truth is, even if we didn't have all this extra biblical support to back up what the Bible says, we don't need any of that because the word of God is sufficient. If there was no other book that corroborated what the Bible said, it still stands on its own. If word of God says it, then we believe it and we can still trust it. John says in verse 9 that he was in prison on Patmos on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was in prison simply because he was preaching and sharing Christ with other people. You know, right now in America, the persecution is minimal, almost pretty much non-existent. And I would say right now, because things can change. In fact, most people believe, believe things will change. But right now, outside of America, most researchers estimate that two-thirds of followers of Jesus are under some type of either moderate or very intense persecution all around the world. And see, that's why right now here in America, church, right now this is one of the best times that we should be sharing the gospel. 
Right now, you can share the gospel with family members and friends and coworkers and even students sitting in the classroom across from you without having to worry about the intense persecution that so many other believers are experiencing right around the world. In fact, students, did you know that right now in the classrooms that you sit in, your teachers, the school, does not have any right to stop you from sharing your gospel-centered beliefs? that you can bring those up in the classroom. I know teachers cannot do that, but you can sitting in that classroom. So even right now, like, you can feel empowered to share the gospel right where you are. And John says, look, for sharing the gospel, for preaching Jesus, he was put on this prison island. But even on this prison island, he was met by Christ. Man, this was the same John who, again, would see Jesus die on the cross to pay the price for his sins and for our sins and for the sins for the world. But this time, when he sees the picture of Jesus, he wasn't the suffering servant. The picture was different. You know, in our culture, I think a lot of times people will often picture uh, Jesus maybe in a way similar to this right here. Um, In fact, if you do a Google search, uh, this is one of the top pictures of Jesus that comes up. Uh, kind of this strawberry-haired, uh, strawberry-blonde, blue-eyed, uh, surfer Jesus, ready to smoke a joint if you kind of got near him. Like, that's kind of the picture of Jesus that I think most people see. But Jesus wasn't that way. And you know what? He wasn't, he wasn't African-American like so many people are trying to do right now, trying to make him more politically correct. In fact, you know what? We cannot conform Jesus to our image. We need to be conformed to his image. In fact, Jesus was a Jewish boy, okay? He was a Jewish boy who grew up, um, adopted by a carpenter, but he was the son of God. And John gets this picture, okay? Not necessarily the pictures that we can Google online, but he gets this picture of the resurrected Christ. So today, as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, I want us to get a picture of the resurrected Jesus. In fact, there's three pictures that I want to pull out today, but also three responses for us. So listen to what it says here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand... He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The first picture I want you to see about the resurrected Christ, the risen Christ, is that the risen Christ is awesome. The risen Christ is awesome. You know, our our, our culture today has has a way of hijacking words. It has a way of hijacking words and either minimizing the meaning 
or even changing the meaning. In fact, uh, one of the words that I think uh, has been uh, just really taken and hijacked and has been really pushed to mean so many different things is the word awesome. We use the word awesome in so many different ways, way apart from what it was originally designed to mean, what its original meaning was. In fact, you know, we, we, we may have it where we simply get off work a little bit early and we'll say, you know what, that's awesome. We'll have it where the weather will be great one day and we'll say, you know what, the weather today was awesome. We'll have it where, you know, we'll be, we'll be working with somebody and they'll get the job done and we'll get the job done and we'll be like, high five team, that was awesome. The Tar Heels beating Duke, so awesome. Or maybe you'll have it where you're eating your fries from your favorite restaurant and your little carton of fries is done. But then you look in that bag and at the bottom of the bag, there is still that one bag fry left. So awesome. <laughs> but the word awesome, if you go back to its original meaning, what it meant, it means something so much different be, besides what we always throw it at. In fact, author of the book, The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, Walter Elwell, this is how he describes the original meaning of awesome and how the biblical authors even use the word. He says awesome, the word awesome is actually mingled with dread. It's mingled with fear. It's mingled with reverence and wonder. He says English Bible translators employ the words awe or awesome almost exclusively to refer to the person and the work of God. In fact, oftentimes if you read throughout scripture, oftentimes the word is translated with the phrase, the fear of the Lord. Most of the times when you see the, the word, the fear of the Lord, that's talking about how awesome and how incredible God is. In fact, if you just look at a couple of examples, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord, in this, in this holy fear, this reverence, this wonder of who God is. And they let all, all, the, all the people, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church itself multiplied. And in Psalm chapter 33, verse 8, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord. Again, this, this holy fear, this reverence, this respect, this wonder of who God is. This wonder of who God is, the awesomeness of who he is, is the beginning of knowledge. See, John gets this picture of the risen Christ who is awesome, and he sees this vision of Jesus, and here's how he describes just how awesome Christ is. He says he was, he was one, he was the son of man in verse 13, which simply means that this is a reference to Jesus being God. It was a reference to the deity of Christ. In fact, 81 times throughout the gospel, you see Jesus actually refers to himself in this way. And see, this was actually a fulfillment of what the prophet Daniel would say in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where he says that the Son of Man was given dominion and glory over all people, a reference to the coming Messiah, 
but also a reference to someone to be given dominion and power and authority over all people, a reference to God and a reference to Christ. He says that Jesus had a long robe and a golden sash in verse 13, which simply means that he is our high priest and he's also our Lord and leader. And see, this is a high priest that does lead out front. John says he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. See, he is the good shepherd, but he's also the good shepherd who smells like his sheep. He's the one that is still approachable. It's kind of what the author of Hebrews was saying, Hebrews chapter 4, where he says, Since then, we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, Let us hold fast to our confession." For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, he is our high priest, but he's also the Lord and leader who we can boldly go into, boldly have a relationship with. Now, he also says in verse 14, he says, look, that Jesus had this white hair, white like wool, like snow. And this simply represents his glory and his holiness. It represents his glory and his holiness. Now, it's not like Jesus was being pictured as And again, no offense to Pastor Brian, but Jesus wasn't being pictured as this gray-haired old guy, okay? But what it's a picture of is that his hair was so bright, it was so glowing, and really it was showing off his glory, and it was also a representation of his holiness. Yes, it did represent his wisdom, but it represented his glory and his holiness. Man, John said Jesus had eyes like fire, And this means that it was a purifying fire, that he can look deep inside the hearts of his people, that he sees us for who we really are, even if no one else does, because his eyes are literally like these lasers that can pierce our souls. He can literally see who we really are. So even if we're putting on a front in front of everyone else, nothing is hidden from the risen Christ. It says that he had feet, feet that were burnished bronze, Now, this represents his victory and his judgment. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, some some translations may say bronze. Some of them may say brass. And pretty much this was a metal, like John saw some type of metal that covered the feet of Christ. Now, in the first century, bronze represented victory. In fact, most armies would cover their shields in bronze. But fine brass actually would cover altars. And so so I kind of combine the two and say this represents Jesus' victory and his judgment. That he is one who brings victory but also brings justice. Man, John says Jesus had a voice like the roar of many waters. This represents Jesus' authority. Last year around this time, my family and I took a day and we went to downtown Richmond. Um, and we went down there, and we went to downtown Richmond. They have this long bridge that goes over the James River. I recorded a video because the water was so loud. Listen to this right here.
Now, it's, it's maybe a little bit hard to tell from the video, but at the moment, my youngest is talking because she is always talking. Um, my wife is actually talking to her, um, and then my oldest daughter is actually talking in the video. But what can you hear in the video? Just the water. Even though my phone was closest to them, all you hear is the sound of the rushing water. And what John is saying right here, when Jesus' voice was like the sound of rushing water, it means that his voice should drown out every other voice in our life. There's no voice that should hold greater authority than the risen Christ. So all of that to say, church, this resurrected Jesus, this risen Christ, he's awesome. But how should we respond? With worship and with awe. And this is a reminder for us that when it comes to who Jesus is, that we dedicate our lives to worshiping him. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about how, how your, your, your posture in worship says something about your position and who you think Jesus is. And so it's just another reminder that when we come to worship God, if we're standing there, you know, with our arms crossed, it says something about how we view the risen Christ. But how many of you know that worship isn't just singing songs on Sunday morning? Worship is literally the posture of your entire life. So when it comes to this risen Christ who is actually awesome, we need to respond to him by a posture of worship toward him. A posture of still looking at him in awe and wonder and this holy fear and respect, but also respect for him. Because even though he is this close friend, man, we treat him as our Lord and our leader. We submit to his authority. We respond to him, the awesomeness of who he is, with worship and awe. The second picture of Christ, of the risen Christ, is that the risen Christ is comforting. Look, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John sees the awesomeness of Christ, and he is just undone, overwhelmed even by how incredible and how awesome Jesus is. It's almost like what, I, what happened to the prophet Isaiah back in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up with all the angels circling around him, around him in the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah wasn't like, oh, it's cool, it's just God up there, it's just Jesus, it's just the Messiah. Isaiah said, woe to me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. There's something about the closer you get to Christ, the more awesome you see that he is, but the more awesome you see that you're not. He is, but I'm not. And you actually see just how amazing his grace is, that it really wasn't anything that we've done, anything that we've done that caused him to pour out his love and his favor and his grace on our lives. It was all because of his good pleasure that he called you, that he chose you, that he forgave you. And John says, look, I fell at his feet. And it was this, that was his posture of submission to this holy, reverent fear of God. But listen to Jesus' response. John says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. So many times in Scripture, when somebody has some type of heavenly encounter, 
either the angel or the Lord himself has to say, fear not. Even though this is overwhelming, he needs to say to them, fear not. See, this was a reminder that even in the presence of God, Jesus was welcoming John in so he didn't have to fear. But remember, too, at this moment, John himself, he was going through some intense persecution in his life. He was literally seeing his other apostles, other brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing less and less people coming to church because they either were being killed or they were being locked into prison. So Jesus, the loving Savior, comes over to John and he comforts him, puts his hand on his shoulder and simply says, fear not. There is comfort that comes from knowing the power of God, the risen Christ. But see, there's also comfort that comes in the fact that we do not have to fear with Jesus in our lives. In fact, even the worst parts of life that come, we don't have to fear. In fact, fear can be overcome because of Christ. So how do we respond to this comfort? We respond to this comfort with hope and trust and faith. Now, just like Hunter said a little bit earlier, it's not some type of cliche faith where we're like, man, I really hope this thing works out. Uh, you know, I really, I really hope I get that promotion one day at work, or I really hope that there's no traffic in the tunnel today, where really you just have to check the GPS to find out if there's going to be traffic or not. It's not some type of cliche hope that people have. It's that Hebrews 11 verse 1 type of hope. Where it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Man, John sees the awesomeness of Jesus and he is undone. But Jesus puts his hand on John and speaks his word to John and simply says, do not fear. We do not need to fear anything in this life because Jesus is the risen one. And again, he is transcendent which means that he is high above all before everything, has authority over everything, but Jesus is also imminent, which means he wants to be close and personal and comforting. Through his presence and through his word, we do not have to fear. Um, a few years ago, and I keep thinking it was just a few years ago, but it's been many years now. My oldest daughter, her name is Micaiah, she's 11 years old. And when she was about a year and a half, um, year and a half years old, she went through this season where she was absolutely terrified of dogs. I don't know why. We, we didn't own a dog. Uh, most of our family members didn't own a dog. In fact, none of our neighbors even owned a dog. But she, for some reason, got this extraordinary fear of dogs. So every time she would see one or somebody would talk about one, it would cause so much anxiety and fear in her heart. And in fact, there was one night where we were getting ready to put her to bed. And we had this bedtime routine. You know, all the kids get ready for bed. Um, then they brush their teeth. And we take some time and we just simply pray with them. And I remember right when we were getting ready to put her to bed, off in the distance. And I mean off in the distance because I know for sure none of our immediate neighbors owned a dog. So at, at minimum, it was at least a couple of houses over, if not a couple of streets over from where we lived. There was a dog just barking off in the distance. It's going, arr, arr, arr just howling at the moon or whatever it was doing. And for some reason, my one-and-a-half-year-old, when she heard that dog howling or barking off in the distance, she immediately began to cry. And she just simply said, Daddy, that dog's going to come in here, and he's going to come in here, and he's going to bite my feet off. I don't know why the dog was going to go for her feet. 
Um, but she had this fear that this dog was going to somehow get in our house and was going to bite her feet off. And I said, I said, baby, you don't have to worry. That dog's far away. There's no way in the world he can get you. And she said, he's going to come in here and he's going to bite my feet off. And she was just in tears, so worried, so fearful. And I said, Micaiah, I said, by some chance, if that dog were to find out where we lived and if it were somehow be able to kick down our door and make it up the stairs where I am now with you, I'm going to punt that dog in Jesus' name away from you, okay? Like, it is not going to hurt you. And even after I said to her my word again, she said, Dad, he's going to bite my feet off. I'm so scared. She just kept saying she was so afraid. And I tried so many things to convince her. And this is one of those few, like, proud dad moments I had. And really, it was, it was because of the grace of God. I feel like God just reminded me. Oh, it's almost like he was saying, okay, stop trying to tell her your word. Teach her my word. And one of the first verses I had memorized when I became a follower of Jesus was 2 Timothy 1.7, where it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. So I thought in this moment, you know what, I'm going to teach my daughter this verse. But she's only one and a half years old. She can't read yet. So the only thing I can do is to sing this verse to her, okay? So I sing this verse to her, and I tell her, I'm going to teach you God's word because God's word brings in his comfort to us. And it helps us through whatever it is we're going through. So I simply sung it. I said, Micaiah, we're going to sing it small on the, on the part about fear. But when we get to the part about what God's given us, we're going to sing it loud. So I said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Second Timothy 1, 7. I'm going to teach that to you guys this morning, okay? I want everyone to stand up, okay? Everyone to stand up. I feel the spirit of Hunter Boone coming over me right now. Um, I want to teach you guys that. Um, what, can you put the verse up here on the screen so everyone can see it? Back 2 Timothy 1.7. Keep it up there just for a moment. And we're going to sing this verse. Remember, you start out small. But when we get to God's power and love and sound mind, we're going to sing that as loud as we can. Okay, so here we go. You guys ready? For God. I don't think you guys are serious about this. Guys, think about this, the word. The words right here in this verse in God's word. Think about the times when you've been fearful in your life or even right now. That fear does not come from God. But with his presence and with his word, he wants to give you the confidence to make it through whatever it is you're going through. So sing this, say this, as if you really do believe that the word of God can bring you the comfort and the hope that you need. So you ready? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Second Timothy 1, 7. All right, great job, guys. You guys can be seated. There was another time shortly after this where uh, my daughter was really fearful about something happening in her life right at that moment. I don't know what it was, but we had one of those little, those little monitors that you put in your young kid's room to make sure they go to sleep and they're not trying to sell stuff on eBay. But she was in her room, and for whatever reason this time, she was in there and she was crying and she was upset and she was fearful. And I heard our little girl, year and a half years old, on the monitor, through her tears, just simply singing this, this verse, saying, for God has not 
given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Second Timothy 1, 7. Church, I want you to know that when you go through a season where you're fearful, the risen Christ puts his hand on your shoulder and he says, do not fear. But he wants you to tap into that resurrection power, that spirit of power, the love that he's given you, that self-control that comes from knowing his word. And this Christ, he is awesome, but he's also the one who gives us the comfort that we need. All right, last thing. The risen Christ, he's conquering. You know, we say it each week. We come to church, but remember, you are the church. So go and be the church. The church is a gathering of the believers. Without believers, this place is really just some brick and mortar and at times some leaky roofs around the place. But it's the people. And John, as he's recording this, look, Jesus is saying, look, make sure this is written down. Blessed is the person who hears these words and puts them into practice. But he's also showing this picture of how powerful and how awesome he is. And he wants to remind the church, the seven churches this letter was going to go to, and then the churches that would come all throughout the centuries, and even our church today, that Jesus is the might and strength of the church. He is the power of the church. And see, that's why the gospel, again, it is so powerful. It is so wonderful that despite our sin, despite our shame, despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion against God, Jesus, who is God, still loved us so much that he still chose to take on the penalty for our sin so that we would no longer be held responsible. Jesus, who is God, came, and he paid the price for our sins, but he rose from the dead. He is alive now and forevermore. Behold, he says, look, I have conquered sin and death and the grave. So how do we respond? With alignment and with follow-through. With alignment and with follow-through. I originally put down leadership for this, but I want us to do it with alignment and follow-through. And it's what Jesus would say to us. He says, look, blessed is the one who hears these words and does them. It's kind of a reminder of what he said back in Matthew chapter 16, where he says, look, I will build my church. And remember, what he's building is not buildings, it's you. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. He says, look, I've taken the keys of hell and death and the grave. He says, but I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it's just like what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, where he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Come on, that is a living hope. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, alignment is us being a part of the church and what God is doing in his kingdom. And church, alignment means that we come into alignment with God and also with each other to be on mission for him. But see, it also means this fact that the risen Christ is conquering, not only we get in alignment with his will and his ways and what he's doing, but see, it also means that on our part, we need to follow through with what it is he's called us to do. John was such a picture of follow through. Again, even when all the other disciples ran away when Jesus was being crucified, taken to the cross, John was right there with them every single step of the way. And right here, as he's writing this letter, um, people, people don't know how exactly old John was when he first started to follow Jesus. But most people know that when you're going to follow a rabbi, a teacher, you at least had to be crossing over from a boy to a man. So it was probably around the age of 13 or so he became a follower of Jesus. That was the minimum. He may have been older. Um, he could have been younger, but probably not. So probably at least a teenager. So let's say he was 15 years old. He's writing this 60 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. So conservatively, John was probably 77 years old at this point. I just want to talk to my senior saints for a moment. Some of you may be right around this age, older or younger. Some of you may have that gray hair like Pastor Brian does. But even at the age that you're at right now, I know that you may even feel like, hey, this has been a season where I've worked so hard. Man, I know some of you have served this country, and I cannot tell you how grateful we are that you served in the military to give us the freedoms that I can stay up right here and challenge you today. I cannot tell you how incredible it is that you've served. But if you are still alive, God is not done with you. He's still calling you. He's still challenging you. And he wants you to follow through. I don't know, maybe there's still that person in your family. Maybe it's a grandchild that you need to share the gospel with. Maybe it's serving again in the church. Maybe even, it's even just becoming that prayer warrior that you knew that your mother was or your grandmother was. And maybe he's calling you in this season to follow through what he's called you to until he calls you home. But the challenge is for all of us. Whatever it is that God has called us to, let's be a church that follows through. I'm going to ask our worship team, I'm going to make their way back up to the stage. And um, as they're making their way back up to the stage, I, I just want you just to take a moment. And, and maybe there's something right now in your life, man, that God has called you to follow through. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just something so simple as, man, God just wants you to be patient in this season. He wants you to be patient. You've been waiting on something saying, God, why aren't you moving in this? But you know you need to slow down and continue to trust him and to seek him. Maybe it is that coworker or that fellow student in your classroom or at work that you know you need to pray for them and share the gospel with them. What is it right now that God has called you to follow through? I want to challenge you that even if you've stepped away, that this would be the season, just like John, that you said, I'm going to follow, true, follow through because the resurrected Christ is awesome. Because the resurrected Christ does give me comfort. He does not want me to fear. In fact, he has not given me a spirit of fear but of power, 
love, and a sound mind. And he is conquering. Church, at the end of the day, with Jesus, we win. At the end of the day, when we're in alignment with him and we follow through with him, we will have victory, no matter what it is that we're going through. So let's be a church that follows through. Father God, I want to thank you again, Lord, for your word, and I thank you for how good it is. And God, I know that even the book of Revelation, even though we're not going to spend the whole series in this book, I know at times it is full of mystery and prophecy. John even says that. But God, there's some things that you've made so clear that you wanted the church back during the first century to get these seven churches that were going to get this letter, the churches through the ages, and even right now, Coastal Church, right here on 1832 Elbow Road, that we will get the fact that the risen Christ is awesome. But not awesome like finding that one bag fry, fry left over, but awesome like, God, we need to have this holy fear of you, this reverence of you, this respect of you. We need to worship you as you are high and lifted up. But the good thing is you still want to be close. God, thank you for the comfort that you bring, even when we're fearful. God, even when anxiety is trying to knock on our door, Lord, that is not from you, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, one of power. Man, that resurrection power that comes through Christ. One of a sound mind. One of love. But God, thank you that you were conquering. Death couldn't defeat you. Hell couldn't defeat you. God, our own sin couldn't defeat you. You are risen and reigning and glorious and victorious. And God, I pray that we will come into alignment with you. But God, I pray that you would help us to follow through. God, as you call us, as you lead us, God, I pray that we would trust you. And no matter what it is, God, we will follow through until you call us home. We love you, God. In Jesus' name.